So like if you're playing jazz, right? It is this instrumental expression and it's gone, you know, all these different places and it blends into classical sometimes and there's avant-garde. Where does it come from? When, when, how is jazz invented? It's invented by improvising on standards, right? Standards are 32 bar forms. They're written, but they are part of the American songbook. They are this marriage of sophistication and artistry with very, very, very easy to consume ideas and concepts. You know, I'm obsessed with the American songbook. That is the wellspring it is it is something that is so fundamentally american it's like one of the great american inventions you know it's like the, it's like the automobile or something it's like that's what america what america's hugest contribution to culture is jazz comes from that so i think what's interesting is that the great soloists are using form they're arcing their their solos like a song it, and they're looking at it as i have your attention now there's a beginning and a middle and an end it's storytelling and i think it gets so intellectualized and people take it to this different place like it's this game. But ultimately, like, you're still communicating within a beginning and a middle and an end. And it, those are the basics of, of filmmaking. They're the basics of, you know, classical storytelling. Hello and welcome back to the Keys Coach podcast. My name's Adam and this is the podcast where I sit down with piano, keys and synth players and talk about their life in music. This is our first episode back after the Christmas and New Year break. That all seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? All the Christmas and New Year shenanigans. But it's great to be back and we've got a super exciting episode lined up for you today. We're chatting with the singer, songwriter and pianist Julian Villard. In this conversation, we talk about how Julian got into songwriting, what the term piano bar really means, what it was like studying with the incredible jazz pianist Kirk Lightsey in Paris, and the role of humour in songwriting along with so much more. Julian is based over in LA and we recorded this episode back in December when he was in the middle of recording his new album, In the Middle of Something. And you can go and check out the Kickstarter for that album, I've put the link in the episode description. Julian has toured internationally alongside Jamie Cullum, Paul Karak and Goldfrapp and he has shared the stage with a host of comedians including Will Ferrell, Reggie Watts and Paul Shear. He's the artist in residence at the prestigious Joe's Pub at the Public New Theatre in New York City, and his live show was named one of the best by Broadway World. Before we dive in, we've been releasing a bunch of new content over on Instagram, so if you want to level up your keys playing, you can go and check that out at The Keys Coach. There's lots of free stuff to go and download over there, lots of mini lessons and tutorials. We've also just started releasing long-form videos on YouTube, so lots more to come there as well. Okay, let's dive into it. Here is the conversation I had with the wonderful Julian Villard. Julian, thanks so much for coming on, man. Uh, it's uh, great to have you here. Thanks so much. I, I'm, thanks for ha asking me, man. I'm, I'm psyched to wake up in uh, God knows what time it is in Los Angeles and uh, talk with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're my. Uh, you're actually my second. I've I've just this week started uh, a sort of branching out from the UK in terms of guests oh, cool. and stuff. So, I just had a uh, Dennis Ham come on. I don't know if you know him. He uh, plays with Thundercat and all those guys. So yeah, he he was on earlier this week. And uh, yeah, you're my second international guest. So it's pretty exciting. Well, I'll I'm, I'm, I'll be, do my best to represent my country and my city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it's been like a crazy busy time for you, right? I've been checking out your Instagram and you're in the middle of recording your new album, right? Yeah, I'm in the middle of working on a new record. And then, you know, that plus all the like holiday madness and gigs yeah. and, you know, um, family. It's like, it's definitely like, I I'm grateful that I'm super busy. I, I, I prefer it that way, but um, it's definitely, it's, yeah, it's been a lot. Yeah, no, it's been, I've been, I've so much I want to ask you, like I've, I've uh, had your music on all today and I've just been checking out all the different albums and all your YouTube stuff. And uh, yeah, I think it's gonna be really exciting to hear about how you got into all of this. Um, we've actually worked together on a project as well. We have, yeah. Um, I mean, not, a number not, of years ago. not in person, but we've, we've not in person, you know. sort of virtually across. Yeah, we, we, we both worked on a uh, commercial, which is for Aldi. Because uh, you, you used to live in London, right? So you probably I did. know about. Yeah, yeah I mean, we worked we, on a, well, we have, we have, we have, as, as we call it, Aldi. Um, we yeah. have Aldi here in, in the States too. Um, I don't think it has the same level of presence. Um, no, as it does in it's Europe. Like pretty big in the UK. Right. But it's, um, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it's very much there. Like, I think I live by one here. Mm. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, it was a, it was a jingle that, um, I mean, yeah, this one actually was more like a jingle, but it was, it was advertising music that I wrote and that was, uh, ended up being produced and arranged in England. And, uh, you did, yeah. did you do the horns on it? 
I did the horns and the strings uh-huh. and was there for all the rhythm section days. And yeah, it was fun. We recorded it in Metropolis, which is like amazing studio in London. Totally. And, no, oh yeah, it was wicked. I know it. Yeah, yeah, I've worked there. It's, it was funny too, because I knew, it's like, I, you know, I lived in London for four years and I, yeah. I, I met a lot of, like, I knew like half the people on the session. It was very funny. Yeah, um, it's such a, yeah. And it was such a great song as well, but it's sort of, when it ended up getting used, it kind of was such, obviously, like, all commercials and stuff. It's such a small little percentage of the song, isn't it? But um, that yeah. was a great song. It, it, did anything kind of happen to that? Do you do you ever kind of perform that? Or? Um, no, 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 no. I no. mean, they, you know, I think the whatever sort of plans they had set up for um, uh, for the, the tune, like, got altered because, it you know, it debuted in February 2020. Right. So any kind of, like, you know, and, and I mean, I always find this very funny because... You know, it's just a, before the craziness. Right. But and, and the name of the song was called Everyday Amazing. So they had this minute where they were like, um, maybe we're not going to use the lyric. And, you know, just because it was like I, I had a minute where I was freaking out. You know, this is when everything's going down. And I was like, maybe they're just going to bail, you know, because for yeah. me, what what's interesting about all of it is that the, the really valuable part of that whole thing is what's called the mnemonic. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. essentially that, da, 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 right. It's that tag. Exactly. It's the I'm loving it. And yeah. that's that's the thing, you know, that's the thing that, that becomes intertwined with sonic branding. I mean, Barry Manilow wrote like a good neighbor, stay farm is there. Like that's something he wrote that still to this day is part of the commercials. I think he actually sold it for like a work for hire for cheap. So right, okay. I don't feel that bad for Barry Manilow. But uh <laughs> I'm saying like, you know, he was legendary. He wrote I'm stuck on band-aids. Um yeah. and uh and yeah, so like that's like that's the thing that potentially has the lifespan to uh, keep getting me them royalty payments, which, which I do love. <laughs> I do love me a bit yeah. of mailbox money. That was a very strange. That was not a good accent. It was like it was all right for a second, then it went into like a weird Aussie energy. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's good. I'm I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Um, so. I mean, this is like a podcast aimed at keys players and a lot of people listening to this will be playing piano, which you obviously do. And, you, you know, it's a huge part of your writing process, which I can't wait to find out about. Um, but I'd love to ask just like what your first contact with the piano was. Was there a particular moment where you just like sat down and were like, this is this is for me? Or did you start on another instrument? How, what, how did it work? So I actually came to music, not music, I mean, I music a little later, but specifically piano a little later. I, I am, um, right. I wanted to act and make movies that was like my what i was obsessed with and especially movies i was basically all throughout high school worked at a video store high school is our sixth form i think yeah 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 like a levels and that kind of right it's hard to explain it's like it's not quite an an, an analogous but um i worked at a video store and this is back in the days because i'm an old man where you had vhs tapes and i was the video store delivery boy i was the guy it was like a thing because i grew up in new york city where like people would order videos and I would deliver them, you know, oh, you live on 86th street and the store is on 81st and I would go and I make, was yeah. making like five forty an hour or whatever the heck I was making and then getting tips, you know, but the, the, um, benefit was that I got to rent up to two movies a night. And this is obviously like, you know, decades before streaming. So I basically had like a, a unlimited access to a library of film and, uh, I guess I should roll that back even, but that was like kind of my essential driver. But what happened for me was that I auditioned uh, for high school. We have a high school in New York called LaGuardia Performing Arts High School, which is sort of what, yeah. the, what the fame high school is. It's it's like yeah. very famous. It's the arts I've high school. I've heard of it, yeah. And I auditioned to act and I didn't get accepted. Okay, wow. Um, the irony of that being, I always say, um, my teacher my like was like another student who was older than me who is like now or was had, had a very, he's still very successful, but this is actor Adrian Grenier, who was a uh, mm. Vince on Entourage. And, oh, no way. And yeah. like, there's like a running joke on this podcast I listen to about like, they, they sort of call the rewatchables where they talk about, is this person actually good at their job? They're talking about a movie and it's called the Vincent Chase Award. He's like not, oh, he's, really? like, he's like known as like not the best actor. Anyway, so um, I didn't get in, but as a backup, <laughs> I um, went and auditioned for, voice um because my okay. mom was like you should do this you have a nice voice and i was like do you leave me alone shut up mom and i had been <laughs> doing um musicals in my sleepaway camp and right. they heard me singing on the bus just goofing around and then some girl was like oh you should go try for the musical and i tried out and i got in i was like you know just one of those weird things so like there was this innate musicality kind of in me that i didn't really i wasn't super aware of 
Um, And so I didn't get in for acting, but I got in for voice. And also I think part of the reason I got in for voice was my demographic is that being like a white male, it was all, you know, black girls. So like just for choir, they needed me. They, and and yeah. I was a baritone. Well, actually, at that right, time right. I was still a tenor, and I was, tenor, yeah. I auditioned as a tenor, and then my voice changed over the summer and showed up as a baritone. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I went because I wanted to go. To, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go to like the other academic based high schools. And when I was there, I really was always like, okay, well, this is just a matter of time till I get back to filmmaking, and that's what I was interested in. I hung out in the AV department, but my second year of being there, I took a music theory class that I just became completely obsessed with. Mm. And that was really my entry point into piano. Um, my father has a PhD in mathematics, so I've always kind of been okay. that into that like kind of level of gamesmanship, that sort of yeah. structure building. And I think that's where, so when I approached um, piano, it was from that standpoint, and really it was the standpoint of like, I like the Beatles, so I was trying to learn how to play Beatles songs. So this is like when I'm 15. Yeah. And it's something to this day that I feel like, you know, it's, I feel like it holds me back. Cause when I see, you know, I've been working a lot with Larry Goldings, who's like obviously yeah. a wizard, you know, and yeah, you know, hanging out with him and watching him play and working with him on a gig. He's someone who's so incredible that like, it's just, it's like earth shaking when you're around him. You're just like, I suck. I am so bad. This guy is so good. <laughs> yeah. He's I would love to get him on the podcast. I think he's so amazing. I, he's just I, like I, he's one of my idols. I, I would you know, he does stuff. He's a little bit reclusive, but I, I if you're up yeah. for it, I could I can make an introduction. He's super chill. Yeah, that would be wicked. Yeah. yeah, he's um I love all his he's he's got an amazing sense of humor as he's, well. He's Larry hysterical. Goldings, right? and, and that's sort of our connection. That's how I met him really I mean, the way I met him is even crazier. But like right. we connect on that tip that we're both like, you yeah. know, I, I actually do I've done a bunch of like uh, online stuff with him on his okay, Instagram nice. with where it's us. We play two terrible songwriters trying to write a song and it's very, it's very <laughs> I dumb. I haven't seen that one. Okay. Oh yeah. Haven't you go, go to Larry's it's, it's in there in his reels. It's on, you'll find it through mine. Okay. Nice. Um, and I, and I actually, but it's interesting, like kind of going full circle. I shot and edited all of it and did all the, and so it's right. one of the great things about moving to Los Angeles. That's really been um, awesome for me is that I moved out here from New York. I was in New York for forever that I spent some time in London, um, yeah. but basically New York, my, the majority of my adult life, is that I came out here to kind of interact more with the TV and film world. And right. that's that sort of dream and desire like never really went away. And in fact, it sort of affects a lot of the ways that I approach certainly writing on the piano. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. A big, it's a big um, decider for me. And so yeah. it's been really cool to be out here and have obviously other professional opportunities open up, but just from like a, you know, a, a learning standpoint, I just feel like I'm learning pro- production skills that I didn't necessarily have. That's so cool. Wow. What a journey. Sorry, that was a long. No, yeah, I I'm, love that. You need, you, you also as a podcast, so you, you should interrupt me. Like I'll just go and go and go and go. You're, <laughs> no, allowed, man, you're allowed to be like, we're, we're good. We got it, dude. No, it's no, not at all. I love hearing about it. I think, um, that's so interesting as well. Cause that makes so much sense now. I particularly listen to loads of your music, all like the comedy influence, which is so so big. But I want to go. I want to go back to something you said, which is that you you began to work out just Beatles songs on the piano. And I think quite often people, when they're when they're talking about the piano, they go, "Oh yeah, I just began to work stuff out." And that's <laughs> there's quite a lot in that. Like how how did you go about learning stuff on the piano? How did you work it out by ear? How did you do it? Um, so it's interesting. I the ear training was there. I think for me as a singer, but honestly, right. it was the theory. Okay. So that's and what do you mean by the theory? What what kind of stuff like understanding harmony, understanding chords, like your theory classes that you exactly been to? and reading and right. sight reading, reading and, music. And, oh wow, and and like you know, be figuring out how, how the harmony worked as like not a game, but sort of like a, like a like almost like a Lego set, you know. Yeah. Where I was just like, oh, I could fit these together. Oh, what happens if I replace this chord? Oh, what happens if I do this? And it was like a, it was like a, a puzzle in my mind. Right. And I, I like puzzles, you know. Um, yeah. I don't like them. I'm not a, I'm like Stephen Sondheim, who's obsessed with puzzles. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm very much not Stephen Sondheim in many ways. <laughs> um, but although we were born twenty blocks away from each other and did live, and he, oh, yeah, oh, okay, so okay. he's an Upper West Side boy. Um, so I've just bought those two Sondheim books, by the way, uh, the inside there and finishing that I'm just going to make my way through them over I, Christmas. It's, they're so it's, good. It, they're, they're a tome. It's like, it's, 
I mean, if you, they're in my section of up here of all my yeah. crazy books. They're up there with my, you know, with my Beatles yeah. complete and uh, with Billy Joel complete and uh, Paul Simon complete. Although Paul Simon's a jerk. Um, I mean, like, it's like it's right up there. So, you know, my like kind of yeah. like sacred area of books. Yeah. Um, oh man, so good. So you were you were basically just kind of like picking out like the was it mainly the chords and then you were singing or were you kind of learning how to play yeah, melodies as well? And no, that kind see, of like, thing? and it's always kind of like I get it kind of haunted me to this day is that I'm I'm really like I'm when I play I'm playing as a writer or I'm playing as like a chord builder. I don't really right. You know the sort of more fluidity and like kind of like um uh. The, the, like a lot of the sort of more melodic and stuff that's like that's been the challenge for me because I, I never studied piano okay like I never took so like you, d- I never you didn't took- do the whole like classical thing at all you didn't do the like but you sort of did you studied I read you studied with like Kurt Leitze at some so point. that's you know I went to Pat I went, so I might when college my primary teacher was Yusuf Latif yeah, he's an amazing jazz musician for everyone listening like right. incredible although he wouldn't let you he wouldn't let you didn't allow you to use the word jazz Oh, no way. Because he was that? a devout Muslim, so he thought it was slang, so, and he thought it was derogatory. So he called his music autophysiopsychic music. Say that again. Auto. 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 I think auto. Yeah, auto. A-U-T-O. Autophysiopsychic music. Wow. Okay, so that's a new one. In class, <laughs> you, could, you, could, you couldn't call it jazz. You called it wow, audio. Okay, the great autophysiopsychic musician, Miles Davis, once said, like, that's how you had to say <laughs> stuff, yeah. you know? Um, okay, nice. So, but, but he, I mean, really he was my, I mean, I did improvisation classes with him and like did a lot of out, like out shit with them, but like uh, he was my composition teacher. So I showed up to Paris to study piano and Kirk was kind of like, you can't play dude. He didn't. <laughs> and it was really funny. Like the first month I was there, he was just like, why are you here? Like, why did Youssef right. send you and call me and tell me? And then he heard me play one of my songs and he was like, oh, Okay. All right, yeah, I, yeah, I see. Yeah. I see now. And he was like, "Why didn't you do that when you first got here? Like, why did you try to like? Why are you doing terrible bebop soling?" And I'm like, "Oh, you know. right. Okay. Oh, you were literally trying to like do trying to do that. I, I mean, guess. not yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. Like, I never really was. But I think that was sort of the pathways that were kind of moved, you know, carved out for mm-hmm. me. So I've always yeah. been like a great listener and understander of jazz music from a from yeah. a. But my melodic sensibility, really, piano has always been there to accompany my voice. Which is yeah. interesting because later in life, it's come in handy because I do a lot of piano bar work, and right. that's the primary function. So, like, I'm I'm very um, attuned accompanist mm. because I've been accompanying myself for decades. It's interesting the piano bar thing because I people don't. I think that's a very American term. Would you say it's like a U.S. term? I because people don't use the term piano bar in the U.K. But to you, what is a because I, I I also want to ask you about your your song piece that sure. you play piano man, which is obviously like so, so funny, uh, particularly because I've done a lot of those things as well. <laughs> Just I saw that and I was like, oh man, that is someone that knows the song that everyone requests. Um, but what what is a piano bar if you had to explain it to someone? So a piano bar is essentially, I mean, it literally is in the title. It is a bar with a. It technically is a bar that has a piano. That's really all mm-hmm. it is, right? It's just it, there's a yeah. bar. There's a piano and there's somebody at the piano playing, right? Yeah. In a more involved, the piano bar, the piano becomes more of like, you know, a focal point in the bar, right? And, and I think that's sort of what would distinguish a bar with a piano from a piano bar. A piano bar is that the piano is an event that happens in the bar that essentially with varying degrees of interaction and people paying attention to it and whatever that's it's there to like drive basically drive bar sales what's been your experience of playing in those bars like have, have you had because <laughs> I, I used to do this a lot when i was growing up particularly when i was like study like doing my G, like uh, what i guess in the u.s would be sort of like high school i used to go and play in these bars and people would i used to have this little jar on the top of piano where people would put tips in or they'd buy me drinks they didn't realize i was like underage sure. and not able to drink those drinks and it was kind of amazing but it it was actually 
when I look back at all of my musical kind of like development, I kind of maybe cite that as perhaps the most pivotal thing. Sure. Having to quickly learn a song, accompany people who just want to get up and sing, work a room a little bit, all of those kind of performance skills you learn on the job. You I, know? I have a lot of things to say. I, I mean, not less of these days, but I wrote, you know, I wrote a song about it basically. Like that's, yeah. you know, it's called Please Don't Make Me Play Piano Man, um, which is like this weird meta tune that I wrote about playing Piano Man. Uh, yeah, but the video is so good for that, by the way. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I've, I'm, <laughs> however I, you superimposed yourself on, it's so on Billy Joel, it's wicked. Um, I've been working on this one man show for the new record, and it, there's like a whole bit in it about Piano Man, and it's just sort of what it represents and how yeah. it works. But I think you know the equivalent would be in England, like a you know the the guy at the pub, right? And like the sort yeah. of kind of you know. Uh, what's the type of it's not it's not like you know you think of an east london pub where people are just sort of singing these i, I don't know, I always think of like chaz and dave or something like i think yeah like, all of that right or, or, or only fools and horses right all of those things all those cockney kind of like right. uh, like like kind of slightly weird songs as well right. you know like but but in america it's much more i mean it's honestly more of a service it's like that's a gig it's not like you're just a dude playing at the pub and he has the gig yeah it's like you're almost an extension of the bar so when right. people are ordering drinks at the bar, they're ordering songs at the piano. So or, or I, I, I like to call it the, you know, you're a song tender. Yeah. Is that still like a really big thing? Is it, is it still as kind of big as it was, that kind of whole I industry? mean, my living presently is comprised half of performance and half of, um, you know, production, writing, and other different sources of revenue. That half of performance income is 80% piano bar work. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, my artist yeah. income when I do my own shows is, you know, it, it's a it's a fraction. It's like a fifth or whatever of the majority of the work that I do is piano is is some inversion of a piano bar gig, and yeah, I have a family of four. You know, it's me, my yeah. wife, and two kids. And my wife works, but I'm the primary breadwinner, and that's because of piano bars. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Oh man, and it's it's so kind of like. I've gone through many incarnations of it where I'm like, this is, I can't believe I'm here. I'm, what am I doing? This is like such a, this is like a graveyard and these people are broken. Mm. And now I've, I, I mean, I've come to embrace it and sort of just, just play that role when I do it. And, um, yeah, it's the ultimate, I feel like it really is kind of the ultimate purest training ground for what I do. Cause here I am in yeah. this situation where I have to process music very quickly. Sometimes I have to learn songs on the fly that I don't know. Right. Yeah. I have to, I'm constantly around songs and learning how they work constantly and constantly making observations about them about, you know, it, like there, it, it, it's also this strange game of telephone of like how you play the song at the piano bar versus how it actually goes and versus how people actually sing it versus the recording. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. 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 Course, and then yeah. you have to hold a crowd. You have to keep mm. people engaged. And yeah. it's like this, guerrilla warfare of music so from a gigging standpoint like you have none of the protections that a gig offers you of like people are supposed to behave a certain way and <laughs> yeah. they're supposed to listen yeah. to you because you're important and what it, yeah. what it's done for me personally um is that like it's allowed me to perceive the entire like commercial construct of music and people going to shows like in a in a different way because it's just that you know, people come to a show, a gig, for them. They don't come for you. And the piano bar is the, they don't, you'll be at the piano bar, the crowd will be in love with you, and then you get yeah. down to stand the stage, and it's just like you're another patron. It's like the spell has been broken, right? Yeah. And you go to an artist gig at whatever you want to go, people have bought... People are going for the construct of the artist of what they're not actually going for the person on stage. And we lose sight of that as performers. We think that we're the reason why they're there. And it's, and it's like, no, the role you're playing is the reason why they're there. And there's something about working at a piano bar that is there is a brutal but consistent reminder of that truth. And it allows you to sort of really kind of focus on the elements that are, it's like being a mechanic or something, you know? Now yeah. you can stay too long and you, you could get broken and it can get weird. But if I feel like for when I work, going to those environments, that's very much the headspace I have. Like I'm a contractor right now. 
I'm coming in yeah, yeah, yeah. to do the work of the job. And it also will affect the way that I play piano too. You know, it's like, yeah, play the, play the song. No one, no one needs, yeah. no one needs your reharmonizations. Play, no. you know, play the rhythm of play the Play what they want to hear. Yeah. yeah. Play the song how it goes. Like, you know, use your piano playing or your chordal structure to relay the information of the song, of the rhythmic framework, of the harmonic framework. If you're working, if you're accompanying someone, be flexible with the time. You know? Yeah. All these things so. that you think that it's on rails and it's actually not. And you realize it's just this impressionistic situation where like you can have a Broadway singer get up and you can have a completely wasted idiot sing Wonderwall next. <laughs> There's no correlation to it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's, um, they're all, you always come away from those gigs with so many stories as well. Don't you just like, oh, of course it's like a sociological experiment. 100%. And I love the fact that it's, it, it must be very grounding for you as well, particularly with your kind of artist profile where you're going and doing these shows where people are there to kind of, you know, because they are a fan of your music or whatever. And then you go and do this gig where, it's almost a bit like those things where you have, if you've seen those videos where you have like the violinist in the underground, yeah. like playing I, that afternoon. And they've got <laughs> and a no Stradivarius. Walking, but, you know. but like, I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I'm learning and I'm trying to unlearn some of it because in, especially out here in Los Angeles, which I just moved to a couple mm. of years ago, it's a, it, the, the grounding actually can backfire. Whereas that you think, because right. again, it's, it, it's sort of, that's in the, the, the Zen nature of the gig. It's grounding in that environment. It teaches you yeah. truths about music, but then when you leave those gigs, those truths aren't as evident. So if you be, if you yeah. take the ethos and the behavior of a piano bar to a real gig, it's not necessarily going to help you as much. It's almost no, just that of course. you are able to see a, another side of that thing of the of the kind of the, the way the music world works, and it's like a remind. It's like you know, it's like it's like working with a metronome or something. Yeah, you oh, know, man, so good. So that that's 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 for me. And it, it, and it's, it's actually helped me, even though it's hurt me a lot, but as I get older, it's helped me, it's helped me keep, stay grounded. It's helped mm. me be more successful because I'm able to focus on the things that matter and yeah. not just in the music, but in the relationships with the people that I work with. But you know, you also have to think about at times you have to put it away and say, okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be Billy Joel to not tonight and not the yeah. impersonation of Billy Joel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man. Wow. So w when, when did your songwriting start? When, when was that that kind of kicked in? Because I, I, I've just been going through your albums and it, they're just like, there's just, you've got so many songs. Oh, thanks, you know? man. And I imagine you have so many that haven't even made it onto an album or been recorded. And I just kind of wondered when did that kind of nature of just writing kick in? When, when did that start? Yeah. I mean, I want to be clear about that too. Like, I, I think it looks like I have a lot of work to me. It doesn't because I feel like I'm very, um, uh, discerning, like I'm very hard on myself about the writing, but I just think I've been doing it a really long time, so it adds up. Oh no, man, you got uh, you got you got you got music out there. I tell you, it's it's amazing, you know, and it, it tells it tells a story as well. Like your your kind of when you go through them, you know, it's like and you can hear your sound changing. Like I watched a video from like thirty, I think it might be like thirteen years ago or something, and. <laughs> I, I noticed then how the sound changed so much, you know, it was kind of yeah. way, a bit more poppy on that side. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, so writing probably started, the writing started very shortly after that music theory class, you know, like I, yeah. I, that was like, I was 15 when I started playing piano Yeah, and I probably wrote my first song when I was 16. Right. So it was like the songwriting Complete song. Yeah. I wrote a song about Pee Wee Herman, uh, okay. of sort of about like you know it's, it was called like it was called Wee. why can't you see me i mean it was ridiculous but which is funny it was actually and it was like i was using um the, the main I've, normally i'd have my piano up right now and i play it for you my repairing yeah. my studio but it's all um it was like a lydian thing and I, right, like, you know nice. it's like perfect example it's like it's it's like sort yeah. of off from the start it's like this there was not <laughs> one four five it was just like yeah like it was like you know, they, we, and it was, it was this whole like, da, 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 and I, but I was doing like C to like D with F sharp in the bass. Like, you know, it was okay, like, it's yeah, like, yeah, I, I was yeah. already off and running into this world of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. what the hell is going on here? Um, yeah. And then that, that was like the thing that like I, the music theory was sort of the Kindle. But then once that took hold, I was like hooked. And right. then I went to college and I went to a liberal arts college called Hampshire college, which is where I, studied with Youssef Latif in the five college consortium, like in Western mass. And, um, I also studied with Billy Taylor. Like there were some incredible musicians in oh, that man. whole scene there. Um, yeah. and, uh, 
the, uh, the, the I, I went there because it was a fi- because of the film program. I was like, I'm going to do film. Yeah. And then when I got there, I like just it, because of the way the core curriculum worked, I couldn't take a film class until my like late into my sophomore year. And I just kind of got back into music because it was I already had yeah. this fabulous musical education from high school. Yeah, and, and it just and it just I mean. <clears throat> What I'd love to ask is when you're, did you like write a song a day? What is your process like for that? Because it seems well, like you, you just, it's, cha- so many it's ideas. changed over the years, right? Um, yeah. Basically, I always credit, like, I think the largest evolution in my songwriting really happened from basically when I was like 19, which is probably like the summer. I mean, I, start, I, would, I went to college and then there was the fir- first year I was like, what am I doing? Whatever. Then it was that summer, so like from when I was 18 turning into 19, because I'm born late in the mm-hmm. fall, um, I was when I started like going out when I was back home in New York and gigging at like blues clubs, you know, like because I would go right. and I was obviously I like, couldn't even fucking solo. I was just there comping and stuff. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I mean, yeah. I, like, you know, and, and it got thrown off my fair share stages. And my, my fa- one of my favorite stories is that I, um, the Roots used to do this very like famous thing called uh, at, at the Wetlands, which was their big jam. And you'll hear Questlove talk about it. But I went and sat in with them and then I got like thrown off the stage. Like because. Oh, no way. Oh, yeah. I had, I've had a, a bunch of those stories. I got thrown off the stage by um, Steve, Pot, Steve Potts, Steve Potter. Who's the alto saxophonist? Super famous. Uh, not, uh, Chris Potter? No. No. I know uh, Chris. He's lovely. He would not throw you off. He would, okay. Even right? if you were <laughs> terrible, he'd be so nice to you and just be like, oh, okay, like, cool, oh, yeah. he'd, like you'd never, he'd never, he's that, that's right, like, nice. he'll like play the most crazy stuff and then just be like, oh, how are you doing? He's like the nicest guy. <laughs> Such a okay, sweetheart. Nice. Um, uh, Steve Potts, I think was his name. Very famous. Okay. Expat. I was in France and he literally like stopped the band and like turned around in a full audience and goes, what the fuck are you playing? Like that stuff, you know? And I'm, I was like, oh my God. Like started crying and shit. Oh, no way. No and way. Kirk in, in Paris, he made me call him to apologize for my playing after the next day. He's like, bro, you embarrassed me. You embarrassed yourself. You need to call him and apologize. And I remember going oh, to like man. a fucking payphone and calling him. I mean, it was so embarrassing. <laughs> so, and yeah, I got thrown oh. up. I, I got the shit kicked out of me because I was trying to hang in these waters that like I probably wasn't ready for. Um, right. But the, so the largest evolution kind of in my songwriting was like, it started right around when I was 18, 19. And then I think between that age and when I ended up getting signed, which was when I was like 26, Right. Yeah. And I signed into London, in London, which is another whole crazy story. Like I, that was my school. That was when I basically yeah. wrote a gajillion songs and I just, yeah. it's all I did. And, and what, what did that look like? Was that like every day you, uh, as, you know, did you have lots of songs on the go? Were you like, right now I'm going to complete each one. Cause I know, I know what it's like. You can end up with so many ideas and not a lot, not a lot of finished I, stuff. But I, obviously I, you I, were finishing all these songs as well. Yeah. I mean, I would sort of write until I tried to just write until I finished it, but you know, yeah. you get one and then you move on to the next thing and whatever. But I mean, mm. I was working, there was a period, especially after college when I was really going at it with this sort of like trying to be a, you know, I guess what is a singer songwriter or whatever the heck I was trying to do. Um, I was writing songs three to five hours a day, every day. Yeah. Like for, for, you know, it's all I did. I would work and every day I'd be at the piano. You know, if I was, I used to teach gym, I was a gym teacher for, and, yeah, and I, I saw would, that. And I was yeah. also like waiting tables and whatever, you know, doing all the different things, but I always made sure that I was at the piano checking in. So like a lot of the, harmonic sort of voicing schematics and the palettes that I use, it all came from that because it, and it was coming and that grew out of that. And it wasn't until really I got into my thirties and kind of after I got dropped from a major label and I moved back to New York that I really went hard into like, okay, I'm going to be a vocational piano player. Like I had acquired the skill set via writing, but also, and I was still obviously doing tons of piano bar work, but not, nearly as seriously like playing at hotels just to kind of um the dep world as you would say in london like you know but but all very like it was always my focus was my music i was that was sort of what yeah. i was doing i mean i would go on these gigs and play my own songs right okay yeah, it was yeah, only yeah. till i got into like this sort of post label world that i was like all right it's i need to make a living let me go like input the entire library of like the piano bar world into my brain yeah, yeah. And what yeah. I found so was from the years of writing songs, I was really good at learning songs. 
Yeah. Like I can learn. So when you say you were really good at learning songs, what is your process for learning a song? Because I know this is something that everyone's got a slightly different process. I mean, for me, I listen to it over and over again before I even go to the piano. But then I've met some people on this podcast that literally just like will sit down and play along with the recording. I guess it's kind of different for everyone. But what is... What is your process well, if I'm gonna for be honest, trying to get a song together? I pr- my preferred way to learn is reading. Like reading the dots? Yes. That's my preferred okay, way. Okay, interesting. I don't like to listen to it. Ah. Because my brain is too full with music. And like if I, li- I want to listen to the song, that's a different story. But I have to learn so many songs that I don't really want to listen to. Right. Like, okay. And, 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 you know, I have, if like, like, I'll love to sit and learn Wichita Lineman because I'm listening to the recording. I'm like, this is gorgeous. I don't want to learn Truth Hurts by Lizzo, but I have to. (laughs) I don't want to listen to it. I don't ever want to hear it. It, It's like, like, I don't want to listen to it, you know? And that, and I, and, and and I, but that gets called and I have to do it on the piano bar gigs. I mean, I have to play Gangster's Paradise. Yeah. That's yeah. how stupid it is. And it's like, but yeah. you know what? Gangsta's Paradise is still a song. Truth Hurts is still a song. It's a different kind of song, but it is a song. You know? And, and if you, I mean, if anybody, Truth Hurts is like the same bass line the entire, it's like, it doesn't ever change. It's like, that's the tune. And it's half like spoken and rapped. Um, yeah, yeah. But it is a song. And 100%. so, oh man. The, I, if I get an opportunity, like I, I have a lot of sheet music. I could, I mean, I probably have in this, office right now i mean you I, I wish you could i could pick the camera up and try to figure it out but it'd be kind of a hot mess but right up here i would say both it's two four bookshelves up here full of sheet music there's another bookshelf here like three layers full of sheet music i mean i have all the real books i have a million fake books i have like the complete recorded you know i've got the entire the complete works of george gershwin every Stephen sondheim show you know, but then Sammy Kahn and Jerry Herman and Julie Stein and Leonard Cohen and Billy Joel and Cat Stevens. And, and then I also have a library between my purchases on music notes and stuff I've downloaded and just anything from handmade charts with lyrics to like fully to full orchestral scores of, you know, like transcriptions of Steely Dan tunes or whatever. I have like five to 10,000 digital pieces. So it's like, I'm a hoarder. Like I have so much sheet music. It's bonkers and it's all on an iPad. Wow. Oh man. So it's like a treasure trove. I'm just trying to work out how you learn it from the sheet music. Does this mean you're reading it on the gig? I'm reading on the gig. Right, I understand. In real real time. And lyrics as well. And lyrics. Man. (laughs) That's impressive. That's impressive. That is like... I'm not, yeah. I don't always stick the landing. Let's get right here. But again, yeah. I get the thing. I mean, you know, if I've heard it once, I can usually just like, and give it a go. Yeah. And, and I probably should do it more from an ear training standpoint. Like I actually went and took a lesson with Larry. Cause I was like, Hey, I want a lesson. And that was yeah, like man. one thing he exposed right away. He was just like trying to make me sing all kinds of crazy intervals. And I was just like, he's like, you needed to be like soloing like a vocalist. And he's like, that's the first thing. I mean, he can do that. It's just when you watch him do it, you're just like, oh. You know, he's like, nine. What did you, so did you run through that? What did he do with you? So you oh, made he's, you like, he's like, okay, like, sing out the intervals as you play, as you say them. I'm going to like, you know, mine or not, like all that crazy stuff. Like, oh, okay. Like, yeah. And he's just- Where do, you go above the octave and all those ones. Yeah, But yeah, also yeah. like, in like, you know, go from the sixth, now go to the minor ninth, now back to the second, now move up to the, and he's just doing okay. it. And I'm like, yeah. and I'm sitting there, with, I'm like, wait, so you're here everything you play? He's like, yes. And I'm like, what? But you must have that a lot, though, if you're sight reading. You must have that skill if you're sight reading those melodies all the time on a gig and stuff. And you must have a really developed ear for that. Um, I do. You know, it's interesting. Like, that's a good question. I do. I mean, like, and, you know, sight reading the melody on the spot. Like, let, let's say I had to sight read a song I never, ever heard before. Like, ever. Mm. Then it's like you know, could I sight read a Stephen Sondheim thing on the spot? No way. <laughs> like <laughs> yes. no way in hell. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I can, but like, can I sight read? I don't know. Like a Leona Lewis tune on the spot. Sure. Yeah. 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 You can give it a go. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, it's not yeah. as hard as you think. It's more, it's more about like the heads upness and the page turning and the keeping the time going. Mm. And like, 
sort of like catching the important information of the song. I also like will, you know, on those gigs, especially if I'm doing a dueling pianos gig where it's like we go back mm. and forth, which I do a fair amount of, I'll like listen to 30 seconds on the phone. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I got it. Because I mean, pop yeah. songs are so formatted. It's like once you get through the first verse and chorus, you're like, great. And then like the bridge, if I need to like wing it or like kind of see what the heck's going on. Yeah. You know? And I'll just sort of figure it out. On the That's fly. so interesting. What I find so what I find so funny about this is that you're this. I when you're obviously talking about these pop songs being formulaic and you can kind of work it out. It's so interesting because your music isn't like that at all, and your music does what I don't expect it to do. Like I was listening to these things, which is you know go, go for it. Well, I would beg to differ with you. Like I mean, I am very like I'm very attuned to form in the way that I write. Right. And so I, in fact, I think suffer from you know like my sense of form is is sort of like not antiquated but it's based on the stuff that i grew up listening to so like if i'm listening to 60s 70s and 80s music that stuff is much more formally different than the modern music modern music you know i always think about that song the that song by kid Leroy, the stay which is it's like a minute and 57 seconds Mm. You have all all the tonal and chordal information in the first eight bars, right? And yet, it, I think it's actually really inventive how the song keeps you going, and 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 it's yeah. like really clever, you know. And it's but and it's and I come from a world where you would be using those using chord changes to sort of make those distinctions, right? And now the distinctions right. are made more in the melodic motion and in the production choices. So, um, but I don't like. I am a big, I mean, like I taught courses on this. I teach online learning courses for LinkedIn. I'm like, you know, I've done, worked at MI, like form is my thing. So like, yeah. when you say it's unpredictable, I, I think my, my takeaway from that is it's unpredictable within the contract of a form. Like I'm not going off and doing through composed music where shit doesn't make sense. Like I'm very much concerned with trying to thread elements that, because I believe that form is the bridge you build with the audience and that's changing but because form is changing because the way we consume things is changing and the and the mediums through which we consume them and that's affecting the shape of the music yeah right it's all yeah, yeah, subject yeah. to you know i always think about like the lp explode like you know beatles songs in the early 60s like i just they're short because they literally physically couldn't like they had to fit it on the record you know there was it was yeah. it was built to the medium and then as we got the, you know the ability to do larger you know, formats evolved and the music evolved, you know, you get to the CD and it gets longer. I mean, even yeah. in, in sort but sort of like a lot of the, the sort of sixties boom of music has to do with basically how the LP rose as a format. You read about it. And like the, the a 33 was like a, a new thing. They didn't have it. They're like, Oh, we can put more music on here. Let's write, let's make albums. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I believe that where I was at, but, but like I, I am, I think form is, that's the contract you make with the audience, right? And a form is very much a, um, like a cultural, um, it's cultural thing. And it's like also sort of like an oral thing. It's like an oral tradition. So if you ignore form as a writer, people will think, will tune out. They'll be like, this is boring. Or I don't know what's happening here. Or I'm, cause I don't feel safe. So when you, when you said to me, and I, I mean, I'm not like jumping down your throat about it. Is that like, yeah. I, I think I'm unpredictable because I'm trying to use form in ways to surprise you, but not lose you. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, yeah, it's I'd, you can. If I was truly unpredictable, I'd just break out into seven four, and then I would jump over. You know, then then it, you would sit there and be like, "There's no map for me." Like I don't. And then really, I always say that the form is the bridge where the artist and the audience meet on. Right. They walk out to the middle. You walk out, and then you can get your message across. But if you don't give yeah. that, you're, you're not giving the audience the bridge to come to you. They're just like, wait, what's, what's happening here? I don't know. That's why when people listen to Ornette Coleman, they're just like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Right. Right. Okay. Oh yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose there's different levels of unpredictability as well, aren't there? For but, sure. I mean, I guess yeah. if I, am I, am I, am I more unpredictable than a Kid Leroy song? I'm more, I would say, okay, sure. <laughs> if that's the standard. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. 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 It's interesting that thing about form though, as well, because I think one of the one of the things that I have picked up from listening so much to your music is the is the sort of nature of like hooky melodies and things that that really you can latch onto as well. And uh, I actually asked someone this in another interview, but I don't know. It's 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 one of the, I, I, there's an interview with uh, Pat Metheny where he goes, uh, "You can go, you can spend your whole life 
uh, like, or you, you can go to college and study rhythm. You can go to college and study harmony. But I don't know whether you can go to college and study melody. You know, it's like a really interesting thought. Like, what to you makes a really good melody? Because I think so many of your songs have these kind of like really big kind of like melodic themes that keeps on coming back and like... See, you know, it's, so like, it's funny you say that because I don't really think of songs from a melody standpoint for me. Right, okay, wow, okay, interesting. The, the lyric is the driver for me. Yeah. It's always the driver. And like, all the melodic choices I make are based upon the lyric. They're based upon, okay. I think I have a natural, way, like m melodicism, whatever you want to call it. Like I have a melodic sense that is, mm. I express, but my choices in the melodies and how I weave them in and out are based upon the lyric and the form of the song. Right, interesting. Okay, cool. And like, would you say then like the melody and the like the chords are like very much secondary to those things, the form and the lyrics? The, the deeper I go on my journey as a writer, the more that is the case. Wow, okay, wow. Every, interesting. Everything yeah. serves the lyric now for me. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and do you think that's been because you've moved more into musical theater as well? I, that kind of world? I think in musical theater that that sort of that value system is in place i mean musical theater is even deeper than that they're like well the lyric the character the lyric serves the character character yeah 100 right and that's like yeah. a whole other thing and i i yeah. also ascribe to that i think where i part ways with my with musical theater is that i think again they're they are sort of slaves to the form so like they're trying to put on a show in a theater with an intermission and that dictates so many of these choices with people in a room. And mm. I'm not, at least I haven't yet really ascribed to that. I've toyed with it, but even then when I do my versions of sort of my kind of like musically and theater inclined stuff, it's more in the shape of a singer songwriter show. It's you're sitting with yeah, me for, okay. you're sitting with me for an hour at most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no intermission. There's no, yeah. you know, and it's, it's like, like a sort of cabaret kind of, Vibe, yeah. in a way but and so cabaret leans into musical theater because it leans into into character but like mm. which very much especially you know each record i make i go deeper into that journey um and i really think that what i'm really happy about with the record i'm working on now it feels like the purest distillation of that where i'm not sort of i'm focusing on the elements of character that are basic and matter and speak to sort of a more universal so it's borrowing from pop songs where it's like, you don't need plot, yeah. you don't need context, you don't need any, I mean, you have some context, but the context is sort of given to you on the record. And mm. so much so that the first song on this album is called I'm Julian. And yeah. it's a minute long and it's just all the context <laughs> you need to understand what's gonna happen for the rest of the album. And it's just a guy yeah, yeah. singing to you in this like very kind of beautiful old Hollywood 40s style. He's just, mm. and the lyrics are, <laughs> I'm Julian. I'm a musician. I'm also a husband with lots of songs about my wife. I'm in my 40s. Yeah. I have two children. What was I thinking? This must be someone else's life. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. you just get, okay, once you hear this one minute of like fun and it sounds like a standard and it's going to have st uh, strings on it and like it's yeah, like Jim, that Jim Cox. So it's like a, it's like a, a movie intro. And then oh, this man. whole album comes forth of like all these sort of complaints about midlife but they, but if, as long as you go back to that song, you're like, here's my context, and now I know what's happening. And the lyric is the driver. Yeah. I also, th this album and the last album, it's all in perfect rhyme. Oh, wow, okay. So I, is like, that, a, that a departure for you? I've been moving in that direction for years, and, yeah. and, and if any time, basically the last, since my 2014 record, which is kind of like a seminal thing, this record I made called If You Don't Like It, You Can Leave. It's a New York City concept record. Yeah, That's my yeah, first yeah. record post-label like it's like the record i made where i wasn't thinking about getting a deal or trying to please anybody yeah 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 and okay nice that's yeah. the first record where i st started implementing but i don't think i was as good at it so i would like you know write songs then i'd listen like oh shit i broke the rhyme scheme there you know yeah like i have this one song it like kills me to play it i mean i, I I'm, I'm happy with it but it's called new york i love it when you're mean and okay it's a nice. uh, it's like there's like all kinds of fucked up rhymes in it and i'm just like oh. and people, yeah, people love that song I to that one. and i'm yeah. just like okay you know okay. it's it's my most played song on Spotify, you know? Um, mm. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the lyric and the structure of the lyric and the and the, is, it will dictate everything. Will dictate chords to me, will dictate melody, it's everything. Mm. Nice, but that, now, now I still, I don't write lyrics first. I write melody and lyric together. 
Yes. You know, and they come for, they come together. Yeah. And it's also helped me in the studio. Like when I'm playing with someone like Larry or the string arranger I'm working with is incredible and they want to change a chord. I'm just like, okay, right. I sit there and be like, is that helping the lyric? And I sit back yeah. and listen to it in a different way. Usually it, the choice, I think the choice that I've made is kind of the best one. I mean, and I'm like extensions. I don't care. I'm like, yeah, fine. Add whatever. I'm talking about like when you want, they want to straight reharm it. Oh, right. Yeah. Change like the root. Yeah. Change, yeah, like, change like, the actual quality. The well, no, even the root I'm open to, but like fully change it. Like there was one thing, there's this one tune in the new record where the string arranger, there's a two five and he wanted to the second time around go to um, a flat six. And like, right. I was just like, nah, because it's <laughs> okay. like all of a sudden add yeah. this syrupy nature to what I was saying. Yeah. And I'm like, this is gorgeous. But like, when I say the wall, when I say like, um, it might get worse. The walls are paper thin. Um, take my hand. I'm all in. Like, it's this really heartfelt saying in this song I wrote called this is love. It's like the ultimate, it's like the final song on the record. It's actually the penultimate technically, but like that, that G was just like, this is cheesy now. This feels like love, right, love lists okay. us up where we, where we belong. And it's like fucking officer and a gentleman, you know, like, <laughs> It's like, this is supposed to be yeah. like heartfelt. So this needs to be the way the harmony was projected in the first verse mm. because that 100%. sets up the lyric change. Yeah, man. Yeah, no, it's wicked. I, I highly recommend everyone who's listening to go check out Orgelian's music because they're, you know, it's such amazing songs and um, groovy and just like, well, I'm going to kind of listen to them with different ears now. Now I know that you're so focused on the lyrics. And I think this is one of the things I'm guilty of is that sometimes I don't listen to the lyrics actually as much as i should and i think that's quite a jazz approach actually well, like, so if you're if you're playing so you have to understand like but this is what i think is interesting right so like if you're playing jazz right mm -hmm. like it is this instrumental expression of like you know and it's gone you know all these different places and it blends into classical sometimes and there's avant-garde where does it come mm -hmm. from when, when how is jazz invented it's vent invented by improvising on standards yeah. Right. Standards are 32 bar forms. They're written, but they are part of the American songbook. They are written as pliable songs for the public. They are this marriage of sophistication and artistry with very, very, very easy to consume ideas and concepts. And that's sort of, you know, I'm obsessed with the American songbook. And like that is the wellspring. It is, it is something that is so fundamentally American. It's like one of the great American inventions. You know, it's like the, it's like the yeah. automobile or something. It's like mm. that's what America, what America's hugest contribution to culture is. Jazz comes mm. from that, and like, yeah. so I think what's interesting is that the great soloists are using form. They're arcing their their solos like a song. Mm. You know, it, and they're yeah. looking at it as I have your attention now. There's a beginning and a middle and an end. It's storytelling, mm. and I think there we get it gets so intellectualized and people take it to this different place like it's this game but ultimately like you're still communicating within a beginning and a middle and an end it's 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 yeah and it, those are the basics of, yeah. of filmmaking they're the basics of of you know classical storytelling which essentially mm. is what songs come from and it's mm. jazz comes from songs it's like it's so it's there it's baked into the whole thing mm. but we think and the the melodies are written to accommodate the lyrics yeah no one's singing um they're humming it right sure but yeah if you take away like uh if you just go ba 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 oh that's nice i get no kick from champagne and instantly we're locked oh what where's where are we going yeah and yeah. And even the way that there's a thing called prosody, right? Which essentially is the way that the lyric meets the, the vowel sounds meet the melody and where they are placed. I mean, that's something that like, I feel like is the highest form of composition. When I look at Sondheim, it's like, why is he's landing on yeah. this word, but he's also landing on this a, because in this register in the human voice, it sounds good and it's easier to sing yeah. and it mimics speech more. Yeah. So that's the, so that's so deep. I yeah. mean, whatever. I mean, yeah, it goes forever. But I just think, 
you know, so everything I do, my piano playing, my voicing structures, my harmonic choices, it's all to serve that. And that's why, like, when I'm playing Truth Hurts or whatever, I'm like, all right, what's this song about? How do I communicate this message? What's the most, mm. and how do I find a way to inhabit this character or this persona and go? And I think, like, all, like literally, it's all in service of that. For, Amazing, man. For, so good. for me. That's you, my approach. Yeah. For and, and that's what's that's what's so great about doing this podcast is that everyone's got like a different approach to these things. You know, that's that's so good. I have one last thing to ask Go you before you, before you shoot because I know you're um, I know you've got to shoot off. I watched the trailer and this is very this is like a bit of a departure away from keys, but it just made me cry with laughter. I watched the trailer for Please Don't Make Me Play Piano Man, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was just like, God, this is so funny because it's kind of like a spoof of you. A little bit and like you're and you're with that guy mark from the park yeah, who you're yeah. kind of writing this musical with and i was just like god that's so you're kind of spoofing yourself you know and that like, that project's hard for me because it, i look at it not like as a failed project but it didn't fully because of covid i, I wasn't right. able to fully like just continue the execution of it and you know a lot of these things are building the yeah sorry, the, the bridges the, you walk the blocks yeah, yeah you're yeah, like yeah. okay you're doing it as you go and it oh, was a, but it I I feel like for me it was a continued iteration, like so. This next record is very much in that spirit, but I tried to get rid of all the confusing sort of more esoteric elements. It's called "In the Middle of Something," and it's literally just about a guy who's married with kids, who ha who writes song, who's a musician, and these are his problems. And, Fantastic. You know, I've got a yeah. song called um, "I Don't Know," which is all about the <laughs> questions my daughter asks me. Yeah. And the first lyric is, dad, have you ever been in jail? Right? Like, and, and but the humor component yeah. is, is deep for me. It's like, it's getting even yeah. more expressed in, and that feels like it's more because there's something I've noticed about my, the way I communicate through songs is like, I can find these. And I think it's sort of like a lost, um, like a lost thing where it's like, you know, there used to be sort of more of this kind of wry, humorous thread through music and now everything is we're interpreting it's all these building blocks like could you imagine like taylor swift cracking a joke in a song that was actually funny <laughs> it's like and i think that's one thing that I, I i always like it's something i struggle with but i ultimately is a really rewarding is that when i'm with audiences like they're coming to have like this sort of moment with me right that's like mm -hmm. what it's all about they want to have this moment it's very special yeah and they want to yeah. be emotional. And then I get on stage and I'm irreverent and I'm doing <laughs> things like making fun of myself. But I think what that does is it actually sets up these emotional moments even harder so that when I come yeah. in with, with, with something that's really heartfelt, it's like their defenses are completely down and they're fucking, yeah, I get, you know, like, oh, wow, yeah. people start crying. You can fuck people up. Yeah. It's like, it's really deep. Yeah. And so, because you're giving them, a, taking them on a full experience, you know, you want to make them laugh, make them cry. Um, so the piano man thing was very much out of that thing. I mean, that came into like, you know, I had a co-writer on a, the whole, the show I was building is, and I'm the scope and the, the reach of it. I think some great songs came out of it, but like, it ultimately feels like a, a little bit of like, not a failure to launch, but like the, the trailer and like, we made this little documentary, which I can send you, which is, I don't think that's, I think that's like tucked away in my Kickstarter. It actually won a bunch of, it's funny, this guy made like a 12 minute documentary out of that trailer. And it won a oh, bunch man, of. I'd love to it, see it. It won a bunch of awards at like move like short film festivals. Like it won like, like literally like thirty awards. I was like, this is crazy. It's like, oh, but wow. the the documentary about the whole thing is almost funnier <laughs> than the record. It's like the record. But that's that's brilliant as well. You know, <laughs> I love it, man. Oh, please send me that because I was yeah. literally sat in this room just before we got on the call and I was just crying with laughter. It's so. It reminds me. It's like the sort of Steve Coogan, Rob Brydon. Well, kind of I mean, thing I, I'm playing. I'm obsessed with all that. Sh I think yeah. I, I love yeah, the, the British one. That was like a big, you know, all that, you know. The office mm. and um spaced and black books yeah. and like all of that Love it's it. all in and and you know steve coogan especially like that you know the yeah. trip and uh the part oh, alan so partridge good. like all that stuff i took yeah. a lot of that in in a very deep way when i lived there yeah man it's i, I just made me laugh so much i i, I yeah, I just thought it was wicked. I'm going to let you go, Julian, because oh, you've been an absolutely amazing guest. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can everyone who's listening go and check out your music? So uh, the most, the thing that would help me the most is if people went through my website or my socials and they pre-saved my Kickstarter. So I'm launching a Kickstarter for my new record in the new year. And if this is out in January, it'll be live. Um, amazing. So 
that's definitely the best thing. Otherwise, you know, you can find me on all the platforms on Spotify and, and this new record will be out sometime in the, in the, I don't know when the record's actually going to come out. It might come out in the fall, but the okay. Kickstarter will get it like right when it's done. And then I'll start release, nice. releasing singles. Oh mate, I can't wait for it. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, man. Well, thank you for asking me to do it. I appreciate it. I had fun. Thanks so much to Julian for coming on the podcast. I've put a link to that Kickstarter campaign in the episode description. Definitely go and check out his music. He's such an incredible songwriter and performer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next Thursday. But until then, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you in the next episode.